What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner. Today's Wall Street rally fizzles as the Dow finishes negative. And on the 100th day of the coronavirus crisis, the city where it all began, Wuhan, China, ends its lockdown. We started red hot and ended ice cold. Reversal. Stocks lose steam this afternoon. A 900-point gain for the Dow evaporates. We're going to have to restart that economy. We're going to have to restart a lot of systems that we shut down. New information tonight. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's plan to restart business. The longer it lasts, the more disruption there will be and the harder it will be to come back. And the sobering reality of death, illness, and job cuts. Tonight, how three religious leaders are dealing with unprecedented fear and crisis. This CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil, begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Good to have you with us yet again tonight. We do start this evening with a look at futures, which right now are slightly lower in early trading. You can see after that big give back towards the close, stocks did suffer a major reversal. I do mean major. The Dow was up 900 points at one point today, sold off into the close to finish in the red. A similar story for the S&P and the Nasdaq after big gains both finished the session Lower. Shannon Sakosha is chief investment officer with Boston Private Wealth. Steve Weiss is founder and managing partner of Short Hills Capital, both CNBC contributors. Good to see you both this evening. Shannon, I begin with you. What do you make of the big give back and the fact that we were up 900, close negative? Profit-taking this afternoon. Uh, that's clearly what was on the table. If you look at the buys yesterday, a lot of people uh, looking to, to, to grab travel and tourism stocks, uh, retail stocks. There was an enthusiasm there that we were going to come out of this and that the positive data that we saw out of New York in particular over the weekend was going to extend and, and actually compress the duration of this curve. And so today, I think what you saw this afternoon was, you know, there have been a lot of investors who held this prior to coronavirus, who held these travel and tourism names, who've hung on for a, a better exit point. Um, retail names, the same thing. And I think you saw that this afternoon. Yeah. Steve Weiss, what did the last couple of days tell us, if anything, about where this market is heading? Well, I, you know, I've been consistent with saying that I think the bottom was in. I, I still believe that. Uh, the market really defies analysis. It trades more on emotion and more in words. It's more linked, in my view, to what Governor Cuomo is saying, because he's at ground zero. New York's been the most affected. But it's, I think the conversation now is turning to, OK, what happens in the aftermath? We're taking for granted at this point, or at least it comes into the consciousness, that maybe in a month we'll go back to work. But then what happens? People go back to work, and does the virus come back? 
So that's what you're looking at right now. That's what I was looking at. I think Shannon's correct. I didn't get involved in the travel stocks uh, for obvious reasons. But I was going to take profits this afternoon after an exceptionally strong day yesterday. And the market follows a pattern. It's risk off Fridays because you're worried about really bad news over the weekend. Risk comes back on. And then you take profits, make money where you can. It's that kind of market. Shannon, do you agree with Steve Weiss that the the bottom is in, that we won't retest the lows? I don't think we can say that just yet. We, we're in this vacuum of information over the course of this week. We're looking just at virus data. We've got our earnings season starting next week, Scott, and we're going to get some really great data about what companies are seeing in their businesses. And some of that could be really dire news. So I, don't, I can't say that just yet. Um, so we're waiting for earnings season to get more information. We'll see you guys on the Halftime Report one day soon. Thank you so much, Shannon Sakosha, Steve Weiss with us tonight. Thanks, Let's turn to Dr. Scott Gottlieb now, the former FDA commissioner and CNBC contributor, adding a new title today, officially joining Maryland Governor Larry Hogan's coronavirus response team. Doctors, good to see you. My home state is in good hands this evening. Thank you. Let me talk, talk to you about the market. Clearly rallying yesterday and in some respects for the better part of today on these improving numbers, specifically out of New York. Are you as optimistic as the market is suggesting? Well, look, the numbers are improving. We should acknowledge that. The numbers in New York, that city's probably going to be entering a plateau. They'll bounce around the top for some days and then they'll start to come down. But by next week, we might see the number of new cases starting to decline. Hospitalizations will continue to increase for a couple of weeks, but the new cases will start to decline. That's true of most of the north and the northeast, as well as the Pacific Northwest, which has been declining uh, over a longer period of time. Um, there's still growth in cases in the southeast. You see Florida reaching 15,000 cases, Louisiana 16,000 cases. The hotspots in both of those states, Miami and Florida and New Orleans and Louisiana, are doubling every two to four days right now. So there's still rapid growth in cases in those two states. And I still think Georgia and Texas remain question marks. You haven't seen an acceleration in cases in those states, but they're still under-testing and you see hospitalizations going up. So there's still some concern. So we're not out of the woods yet, but I think we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of when this epidemic is going to peak nationally and when we can start to contemplate releasing some of these really onerous population-based mitigation tactics that we've been employing, basically keeping people in their homes. We'll make that transition in May. I think there's still a lot of uncertainty going forward, what happens in June and then what happens again in August. I'm not sure the market's really anticipating that. I think that there's a lot more uncertainty around what the fall looks like than people are really starting to factor in right now. I'm wondering how you're thinking about the numbers themselves and if you think we can truly trust them. There are some alarming reports tonight that a lot of people are dying at home and not in the hospital. Therefore, they're not being counted in the official numbers. What are your insights on that? I think most deaths in this country get reported and the cause of death gets reported. I'd be very surprised if there is any kind of dramatic underreporting in the U.S. right now. It is true that systems are overwhelmed and there's going to be underreporting on the margins at hospitals and outside the hospital setting. We're clearly not diagnosing all the infections. There's a lot of infections happening in the community that aren't making it into official statistics. There was a study out in the British Medical Journal today saying that as many as four out of five cases may be asymptomatic cases. That's high relative to other analyses, but we also know that there's probably a lot of asymptomatic infection that's occurring that we're not counting. So the number of cases is higher. Probably there are some deaths that aren't getting reported. There were some early deaths probably that weren't reported. But by and large, I think hospitalizations, people who are infected and hospitalized, 
and people who succumb to the infection, I think those are by and large making it into the official statistics. That's why when we look at trying to track what the scope of an outbreak is or epidemic in a state, the first thing to look at is the hospitalizations because people who get hospitalized with the infection are going to get counted more reliably than people who are just diagnosed with infection and might be at home. Speaking of hospitalizations, now half of where they were a week ago in New York, the number of ICU trips are down. Uh, that's significant. Can we, for the first time, doctors say that the curve is indeed flattening tonight? I think the curve is starting to flatten. I don't think we're quite there yet. But, you know, you, you fit a line to a curve, and generally it's reliable when you do this kind of modeling. And unless we really did something to pull back the measures that are now implemented, which we're not going to do, we're going to continue with the, the measures until we see a real trend, unless we were to pull back right now, I think the trends are going to continue. Uh, we're going to see these, these um, new cases start to plateau over the course of this week, especially in places like New York and hopefully start to come down, the new cases. We're still going to have new cases on a daily basis, but the number of new cases will start to come down. One thing to remember is what happened in Italy was when they reached their plateau, they bounced around for a little while. They, there were some days that looked worse than others, and we thought maybe Italy hadn't plateaued. Um, but we, they stayed flat for a number of days, and they sort of bounced around that top before you started to see the declines. That's a result of the mitigation. What the mitigation does is it stretches out the epidemic, but it, but it pushes down that peak. That same, that same thing's going to happen here. You're going to see New York bounce around for a number of days. There'll be days where it looks like they might be going back up again, and in the next day they'll be down again. And that's going to happen, and then by next week we'll start to see, I think, steady declines. Doctor, stay with me if you would. I want to bring in our Contessa Brewer now. She is following how New York is thinking about the key question, how to safely get back to normal. Contessa, what are you learning tonight? Well, look, we're still in the middle of a crisis in New York, but the governor, Andrew Cuomo, is starting to tackle a plan on how you move millions of people back to work. To start with, he's coordinating that task with the governors of New York, or of New Jersey, rather, and Connecticut. We try to operate to the best we can as that regional collaboration, and that has been working well for us on schools, on the economy, on health care issues. We have to start planning restarting life. We're not there yet, but uh, this is not a light switch that we can just flick one day and everything goes back to normal. We're going to have to restart that economy. We're going to have to restart a lot of systems that we shut down abruptly, and we need to start to plan for that. My personal opinion is going to come down to how good we are with testing. And look, it's clear that he thinks we're going to have to start the process of getting back to work before we've truly conquered coronavirus. To that end, they're saying testing is absolutely crucial because they don't want to send a bunch of people back to work and then see another viral outbreak. Uh, the Department of Health in New York State has developed its own antibody test for COVID-19. That is those antibodies that show whether someone has contracted the virus and now has recovered. And now the state is going to invest in private companies to ramp up that rapid testing so they can deploy it. The governor is also urging the federal government to give more aid to the state and local government. They've lost so much in tax revenue. He wants to see that in the next relief bill. And he has tapped two former aides, Bill Mulrow, who's a senior advisor at um, advisory director, rather, at Blackstone, and then Steve Cohen, who's an executive vice president for holding company McAndrews and Forbes, asking them to help create a plan. And Governor Cuomo says he's looking at this return on a regional basis, 
on a staggered basis and definitely to choose workers to go back who are less vulnerable to infection, Scott. Contessa, thank you. That's Contessa Brewer reporting tonight. Doctor, I turn back to you then talking about reopening. You said, quote, today, we are looking at an 80 percent economy where certain things don't come back. I think we'll get the technology, but we only have four months to do it. Are we going to meet the challenge? Well, what we need by the fall is uh, massive surveillance testing capacity, basically the ability to test people in the community and find out who's infected, actively infected, um, and good interventions to try to isolate individuals who have infections so that they don't spread it. So we don't have to go back to these population-based tactics. And ultimately, we need a therapeutic. It doesn't need to be a cure, but it needs to be effective at maybe prophylaxing people, preventing people from getting infected who are exposed, and maybe treating some people who might be more vulnerable to the infection, more likely to have a bad outcome. Will we have those tools? We need them. If we don't have those tools by August or September, we are going to face the risk of large outbreaks and maybe another epidemic. I think we'll have those tools, but there needs to be a concerted policy to try to address this. It's not clear who owns this right now, but the government needs to be marching towards trying to get these kinds of capabilities. And remember, what we need in the community is point-of-care diagnostics to diagnose active infection. People talk about serology, basically looking for antibodies for people who've been exposed to the infection and now have some level of immunity. That's good for certain kinds of decision-making, but when we deploy those serological tests broadly to see who's been exposed and who's now immune to this, my guess is, based on the data we're seeing, we're only going to find maybe 3 to 5% of the population at most right now has been exposed to this and developed any level of immunity. It might be less than that. It's not 30 or 40%. So there's a lot of people who think that they had this at some point in January or February, and we think that there's a large pool of people who are now immune to this. That's not going to be the case. Doctor, stay with me once more. I want to go to uh, Jonathan Swan now because there is another big story to talk about tonight. New revelations of how some in the West Wing were thinking about the virus at the same time the president was playing it down publicly. White House economic advisor Peter Navarro warning about the threat of the coronavirus in two memos in January and again in February. Mr. Navarro predicting a, quote, full-blown COVID-19 pandemic that would take the life of as many as one to two million souls. On the CNBC Newsline now is the national political reporter from Axios, Jonathan Swan. He did break the story today. Jonathan, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. The president said repeatedly this evening in the news conference that he didn't see the memos. Do you have any reporting to suggest whether that's true or not? I don't. Uh, what I do know for certain is that both memos were widely circulated, both within the White House and among other agencies. Um, the January 29 memo went to many, many people. It was sent through the National Security Council. Uh, one of the recipients was Dr. Anthony Fauci, but lots of other people in the White House. But I don't know whether the president read either memo, uh, but they're, they're extraordinary documents just in terms of understanding the history of this time and how certain people sounded alarms early uh, that weren't necessarily acted upon. To, to be clear, the memos were directed to the president directly. Is it plausible to believe that he wouldn't have seen them? Uh, it's certainly plausible to believe he wouldn't have read it. He's not a huge uh, consumer of written material. Um, I'm sure it landed on his desk. The second memo is, is addressed to the president. 
but I have no knowledge from my reporting. I don't want to speculate. I have no knowledge from my reporting whether the president actually read it or not. How would, your, not. How would your reporting suggest the memos were taken? Were they taken seriously as they circulated through the West Wing? And how would you say Mr. Navarro was viewed in the West Wing at that time yeah. when he wrote the memos? The, the short answer is they weren't taken very seriously. And the context for that is a lot of people in the White House view Peter as uh, someone who sounds the alarm about China every day of the week. So when you do that for three years, you know, I mean, these memos were very, very, you know, alarming. I mean, the first one says, you know, this is in January, that, that the virus could kill more than half a million Americans, cost close to $6 trillion. You know, for a lot of these people, their eyes glaze over when they receive a memo from Peter Navarro. So, no, the short answer is that for a lot of people, there were some, definitely some, particularly um, in the National Security Council, Ma- Matthew Pottinger, who's a China hawk, much more aligned with Peter Navarro. But for a lot of people in there, it was just, oh, here goes Peter again, you know, with another one of his anti-China, uh, you know, missives. What's interesting is weeks after the first memo was written, The president himself continued to downplay the virus. He said on February the 19th, quote, we're in very good shape. The second memo comes on February 23rd. And that's to your point when Mr. Navarro really turns up the alarm, as we read in the open, quote, increasing the probability of a full blown pandemic. The president, though, and other members of his staff continue to downplay the virus. That's when Larry Kudlow comes on CNBC and makes the airtight comment The president, a couple of days after that, says the virus is going to disappear like a miracle. And interesting, and I'd like your reaction to this. Tonight, the president was asked about his downplaying the virus and said the following. I'm a cheerleader for this country. I don't want to create havoc and shock. I'm not going to go out and say this is going to happen or that is going to happen. What's your reaction to that? Well, just from my reporting, just you need to understand the context there, which is the president was running for re-election on one thing, the economy. And for Trump, the economy in the large part equals the stock market. And so Trump and people like Kudlow were very, were still, you know, late January, certainly extending into February, late February, even into early March, very skittish about saying anything that would spook the markets or disrupt the market. And so that's the context in which these memos landed. Uh, the president wanted to believe the best and was sort of willing himself into, you know, sort of uh, power of positive thinking uh, mentality uh, and and was really focused on not saying anything that could stop his record-breaking run with the Dow. Jonathan Swan, thank you very much for being here this evening. Appreciate that. That's Jonathan Swan of Axios. Let me turn back to you, Dr. Gottlieb. Your reaction to this remarkable story? Well, look, clearly there were missteps. People are going to be writing books about this for a long time. But I would just put the memos in context, and it's not to, you know, to to try to uh, find an excuse for what what transpired with these memos. I'm not privy to it, and I read the reporting. But at the time that these memos were written, the White House was implementing pretty extraordinary travel restrictions um, in terms of restricting people from China coming into the U.S. And I think that there was a view that you can implement these travel restrictions prevent most of the um, viral infection into the U.S., most of the transmission into the U.S. by preventing people from entering the country who might be infected and hopefully get into the summer and the summer would be a backstop against transmission. So somehow you can avert an epidemic here. I'm not saying that that was 
good thinking. There were clearly missteps here, but there was a strategy that was being implemented. And I think there were a lot of people in the administration who really believed by putting in place those travel restrictions, you can delay the entry of the virus long enough that if you got into the depth of the summer, that would be a natural backstop against transmission. And there was some logic to that. I think it was always going to be the case that this became epidemic. And we were talking about that in January and February. But there were also people who believed that you could prevent the introduction of the virus in a meaningful way. But you have maintained from the outset, certainly for the last many weeks that I've been speaking with you, that the biggest reaction to the virus itself and how it was going to be dealt with and mitigated was at the state level, that the states couldn't rely on the federal government to make key decisions. It was going to be left to the governors, correct? Well, that's been the strategy of the administration to defer to the governors in a lot of these decisions. And look, in hindsight being 2020, we needed a broad testing regime in place in January and February to do the early detection. If we were able to detect these cases earlier, we could have implemented case-based interventions and isolated people. But we didn't do that. And now we are where we are. If Navarro's memos, though, were taken more seriously, um, as as Jonathan Swan was, was discussing, would we be in a better place tonight? Probably we would be. I think if the, if that logic was infused across the White House, you might have had more urgency around trying to put in place broad screening, broad testing capabilities in late January, early February. And you might have detected some of these outbreaks before they became very large. Unfortunately, we really didn't detect the outbreaks in Seattle and New York and San Francisco until they were so large that we couldn't contain them. And then we started to seed ourselves. People from San Francisco and New York were traveling to other parts of the country and spreading infection. Dr. Gottlieb, we appreciate your time as always. We'll talk to you again tomorrow night. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb once again with us tonight. There is much more ahead on this CNBC special report. Markets in turmoil. Next, an exclusive CNBC poll showing where voters in the swing states stand on the government's handling of the crisis. Plus, bank leaders head to the White House as individual business leaders hope for help. See what came out of this meeting. Also tonight, three religious leaders on the eve of Ramadan, Easter, and Passover. About how they're trying to guide their congregants through this unprecedented crisis. Before the break, images from across the USA on day 100 of the pandemic. idea that's inspired countless new ones from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives 30 years ago state street launched the spider s&p 500 etf spy a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does what can you do with spy before investing consider the funds investment objectives risks charges and expenses visit ssga.com for a prospectus containing this and other information read it carefully before investing spy is subject to risks similar to those of stocks all etfs are subject to risk including possible loss of principal alps distributors inc distributor good to have you back with us tonight. 22 members of the 44th Medical Brigade in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, are heading north to New York City tonight. 
The mission is to work at a temporary field hospital set up in the Javits Convention Center to treat victims of the coronavirus. Most times we get called upon, we get called upon to, to deploy, go overseas and do missions. But to be called upon to help fellow Americans, I think, is, is really a great thing. The definition of answering the call. Other headlines on the virus tonight. New Jersey closing all state and county parks as it sees its biggest one-day increase in COVID-19 deaths. France, now the fourth country to surpass 10,000 coronavirus deaths. And the city of Wuhan, China, where the virus began, ends its lockdown today after being sealed off from the world for two and a half months. Last hour, President Trump warning Americans about the difficult week ahead and the latest on a potential vaccine. And there's a monster we're fighting. But signs are that our strategy is totally working. Every American has a role to play in winning this war. We've known literally forever that diseases like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and asthma are disproportionately afflicting the minority populations, particularly the African-Americans. Unfortunately, when you look at the predisposing conditions that lead to a bad outcome, with coronavirus, the things that get people into ICUs that require intubation and often lead to death, they are just those very comorbidities. That was Dr. Anthony Fauci within the last hour. Throughout the day on CNBC, we've been releasing results of an exclusive survey conducted with change media involving 2,500 people in six battleground states. 87% now have serious concerns, they say, about the virus, compared to only 53% in March. 59% say the government's response to the virus hasn't been aggressive enough. 7% say it's too aggressive. And half say they are worried or uncertain about their finances in the new year. Half remaining confident. Well, President Trump meeting with banking leaders today regarding the loan program for American business owners. Kayla Tausche with more live from Washington, D.C. tonight. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Scott. The White House and Treasury Department are moving to expand a program delivering small business aid as Main Street borrowers are clamoring to get a piece of the $350 billion already earmarked under the existing stimulus program. Today, the Treasury Secretary proposed an additional $250 billion and suggested that if support was unanimous, both chambers of Congress could pass that expansion by the end of the week. Community banks and small businesses continue to tell CNBC about a lending logjam that is preventing some of this existing money from getting to them. But in a virtual conference today at the White House, CEOs of the country's largest banks told the president they were processing hundreds of thousands of applications. Bank of America CEO said it approved 250,000 applications. J.P. Morgan, 375,000 applications, totaling an estimated $40 billion. President Trump praised their efforts and asked them for new ideas to help the economy. In about a month from now, maybe when things calm down a little bit with respect to our hidden enemy, uh, Steve will set up a meeting and we'll uh, meet with some of the banks and we'll discuss what we can do for you to make it just uh, go, not just this program, but other programs that you want. To
a decade after the 2008 financial crisis, banks win little sympathy from voters. Only 18 percent of respondents in CNBC's exclusive battleground poll believe it's very important that banks get aid, whereas nearly all voters believe that some relief should be given to small businesses, workers and hospitals. Scott, this is President Trump says that negotiations are underway for a fourth phase of stimulus money. Remains to be seen what exactly will end up in that package and which industries it will target. Scott? Very revealing poll. Kayla, thank you. That's Kayla Tausche reporting from Washington tonight. There is much more ahead on this CNBC special report. Americans may be seeking guidance through this storm like never before. Next tonight, what three religious leaders on the eve of Passover, Easter, and Ramadan are telling their frightened congregants, many of which have been directly impacted by the crisis. Before the break, images from around the world on day 100 of this global pandemic. Podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. Pain and problems are everywhere. Victims of the virus, the sick, and the dead grow to numbers many of us could never have fathomed. In many parts of the country where gatherings are banned, funerals and memorial services have turned into empty conclaves of grief and sorrow. This country is dealing with new fears and a new way of life. In many cases, we're turning to our religious leaders for help, counsel, searching for guidance. Tonight, what they're telling their congregants and feeling themselves in a new era. This CNBC special report continues. Once again, here's Scott Wapner. And joining us now is Rabbi David Seth Kirshner of the Temple Emmanuel in Bergen County, New Jersey, Imam Omer Bajwa, chaplain at Yale University, and Pastor Raymond Muniz from Christ Community Church 
also in New Jersey. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for being with me tonight. Imam Bajra, I'd like to begin with you. you. You are, as we said in the open, all of you are facing new challenges. Your mm-hmm. congregants are facing anxieties in, a, in the manner in which they, they never have. How are you reaching your community, Imam, and what has been your message? Well, thank you for inviting us all tonight. Uh, I would say two things. One is that uh, we've moved everything online. So we have uh, all our teachings, all our sermons, our community classes have all been moved to Zoom. Um, and that's just the nature of, I think, so many of our religious communities across the board have moved online and uh, doing things virtually. Second is that, uh, you know, colleagues are going to share so much of this is about uh, pastoral care and and spiritual mentorship and you know sort of virtual community building right making ourselves as available as we can to the community but knowing that what we as religious leaders bring is is physical presence and spiritual presence but we need to sort of reimagine what that looks like now rabbi i'm wondering how you've dealt with your congregants um, who may have had relatives friends family who've passed away or become sick from this virus, how you've had to deal with that. Uh, That's been the most excruciating part of what we're doing right now, Scott, Um, to see congregants who are in pain that you can't hug, you can't hold them. I've officiated at too many COVID funerals already, and to be limited to one or two family members has been incredibly painful. The converse of that is we've been able to Zoom the service. So we've had 100 households join us at the cemetery or for the memorial shiva, which has really buoyed the spirits of those who are grieving. Um, But it has been very challenging. I've also, like the imam, been working every day through text and phone calls, calling all of those who are hospitalized. We can't visit them personally, but being in touch with them makes a big difference. Pastor Muniz, I I turn to you. I'm wondering how you've had to change, perhaps, your your message to your congregants in in what is a time of of obvious despair, but yet this is for your community, the holiest week of the year. It is, and uh, crises are not, uh, you know, new to us. Uh, people of faith have had to face crisis uh, from generation after generation. So this is just another uh, face in our uh, in our struggle, in our faith, in our walk. And uh, I would say that for me, uh, it has changed. Our, our church has evolved. We we used to be a church that would uh, be encouraging people to come to the church, and we would do everything possible to attract the people. That's no longer uh, accessible. Now we need to make ourselves available. And so what I do is I'm available and I'm accessible 24 by 7. My members are calling. They're asking for prayer. They're asking for encouragement. And so every day I wake up early, I'm praying for them. I'm thinking of them. But then I am going into my office, and I am preparing everything I can to encourage them about what God has done in past time, what he's doing today, and what he continue to do in future times. So this is a time to uh, to be strong and to be courageous and to stand up and uh, and be a people of, uh, of faith and trust God, and he will get us through this. We've seen this in 1918. We've seen this in the crash. We've seen this now in this horrific event. But we will get through this, and what we need to do is stand fast. Imam, what has your message been? 
uh, very much to what my colleagues have said, very much that God is merciful and God is in control. Uh, this is a test. This is a tribulation that the world is going through. And and uh, and we'll see the, those people and those communities that rise to the occasion and uh, offer their services of uh, assuaging the, the anxiety and the fear that the world is going through and that are serving uh, human beings. And we have extraordinary healthcare workers and professionals and so many people, essential workers on the front lines. Uh, and it's really about bringing humanity together uh, to deal with the challenge. This is, Rabbi, difficult to, to have people focus uh, so much on, on goodness and kindness when there is so much despair and, and anxiety, isn't it? It is, but if you put it in perspective, you can realize how blessed we are. Uh, you know, if only I were afforded shelter, I would say, as we say in the appropriate time for Passover tomorrow night, Dayenu, it would be enough. But I live in a house with shelter. I'm surrounded with my family. We have our health. I have running water, electricity, internet, cable. These are things that too often we take for granted. And there are many, many blessings that surround us. I've been trying very hard to orient and make a posture of seeing those blessings, not only for me, but for my congregants, because I think that's an important perspective to have during this very challenging time. Pastor Muniz, I'm wondering, have you, have you been able to visualize what the other side of this crisis looks like? And how do you speak to your congregants about that? Well, you know, there's two sides, as you said. There's the people that believe in God, and those of us, we have a strong faith, we can rely on that. The ones that uh, do not have a faith in God, uh, do not exercise a faith, this is a time of soul-searching. You know, if this is, in fact, the world that we live in, is this all there is? Because we believe that there is an afterlife, and for us... The afterlife is eternal. This is temporal. So, you know, our focus is to be compassionate, to be loving, and to be caring and reaching out. And so faith plays an important role in people's lives. And if they don't have faith, they're going to rely on medicine, on government, on science. But we rely on God, and our God is able to conquer all things. With, with him, there's nothing impossible. So, you know, I have three sons, and they work in the hospitals. I have a daughter-in-law that works in the hospital. I have another daughter-in-law that's just about ready to become a nurse. So I'm, I'm consumed and concerned about them. But one thing I do is I release them every single day into our God, and I trust God to see them through. When they come home, I thank God for having them come home safely. And to me, that's my biggest encouragement, and, and that is that, you know, seek God while he may be found, and he will, he will provide all of our needs, and he will give us the strength to get through this. And again, we will get through this. Imam, are, are you able to think about whether it's a month from now, two months, three months, whatever, when you will be able to be back in front of your community? I mean, I'm excited to think about what, you know when that, when those days will come. Uh, it, it, we're in the thick of it right now, uh, and so it's challenging. But we definitely uh, want to give people hope. And I really appreciate my colleague's message of uh, what we call the ministry of perspective, and also encouraging people to develop resilience. Uh, and that resilience is what it's going to take us to the other to the other side of this. Rabbi, what will your own message be tomorrow night at your own seder table? My message of hope for what will look like on the other side of this is that this is a moment that is defibrillating our country, our world. And frankly, we needed it. We were out of rhythm. We weren't able to see people because of their political stripe or religious affiliation or who they were or who they supported. This is a moment that has got us shocked back into a shared rhythm of unity. 
And that is what we're going to capitalize on. And we're going to make it last much longer than just the few minutes until we find a sense of normalcy. That's going to be religious leaders challenge. That's going to be our congregational challenge. And that's what the hope of this moment will be, of where we come together unified through this challenge that we're going through as a people. Imam, you spend so much of your time hearing about the fears of others. Who do you turn to to talk about your own fears in this uncertain time? Uh, I appreciate the question. The, you know, I'm a chaplain, uh, and they say every chaplain needs a chaplain. And so I have an amazing supervisor, uh, uh, Chaplain Sharon Kugler, who's a university chaplain at Yale. And then I have my own spiritual director, uh, who's a s- senior imam, who I turn to uh, for my own religious guidance and uh, pastoral care. And Pastor, I posed that same question to you lastly. You know, I have a wonderful family. Uh, our church is truly a family. And so every single person cares for me just like I care for them. I've had members drop by my house, leave food in the back of the house, and just, you know, wave at me. I've had people call me. Uh, I had one gentleman call me this morning, and he wanted to encourage me. And so, you know, it's a reciprocal thing. This is not just us giving, but us also being able to receive. And I am blessed to have a wonderful wife and family that share my faith, and then an extended family that goes beyond what anyone can imagine. Rabbi, I see you shaking your head. Look, it's a very hard job as the nurturers to remember to put our own oxygen masks on, too. Um, I, like the pastor and the imam, I have some incredible colleagues. I have an amazing supportive wife and two amazing children, and they've all been um, a great source of help. And, And like the pastor said beautifully, my congregation has nourished me, and I hope I can only give them a fraction of what they have nourished um, back to them. It's great having all of you here. Uh, Pastor Ruiz, uh, really, your, your kids who are at uh, Inglewood Hospital uh, on the front lines of this, we wish them well, and we're grateful for all that they're doing. We're grateful for all that all of you are doing this holiday season. We'll talk to you again soon. Stay Thank safe, you. Scott. You all as well. There's much more ahead tonight. Next up, stepping up. We are live streaming the national anthem. A business owner suffering through the crisis but making people take notice along the way. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back. The restaurant chain Mission Barbecue has always given back to the communities where it operates. Now it's donating meals to local heroes, from healthcare workers to ShopRite staff. Tonight, how Mission Barbecue is stepping up. What makes this country so amazing are our heroes. Anybody that'll stand on a line, they'll raise their right hand, and they'll swear to protect, serve, and save. A portion of everything that we do at Mission Barbecue stays in every community that we get the privilege of serving. Fire, police, EMS, we give back to those organizations continuously. Just dropping off food at the firehouse or the police station, or now more and more to hospital emergency rooms, and just knowing that we get the easy job in all this, we get to just serve food and say thanks, but at least proud in some way to be doing our part. We are live streaming the national anthem 
on Facebook every day at 12 noon Eastern because we're free and we're safe and we never ever want to take that for granted. That was Mission Barbecue owner Bill Krause stepping up tonight. There's more ahead on this CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. We are back now with tonight's headlines on the 100th day of the coronavirus pandemic. China ends the lockdown of Wuhan, the city where the virus first started after two and a half months. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo says he's talking with the governors of New Jersey and Connecticut about how to reopen the tri-state area when the time is right. And Amazon says it will test a disinfecting fog at its Staten Island warehouse where workers protested conditions. As for stocks today, after a session in which the Dow fell nearly a thousand points from its peak to close lower, was trying to build on Monday's 7 percent gain and certainly got off to a strong start, though heavy selling in the latter part of the day and especially into the close turned the major averages negative by 4 p.m. Here's where futures stand right now as we shape up for the day ahead on Wall Street. We are right now modestly in the green across the board. Go to CNBC.com for up-to-the-minute information on the markets and, of course, the virus. We are back tomorrow at 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange and at 7 p.m. for our nightly special Markets in Turmoil. For all of us here at CNBC tonight, please be safe. I'm Scott Wapner. Shark Tank is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 